1: Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem
0: of a detour. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's
1: Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From
0: Bloomberg, this is The Deal.
1: Welcome to the Bike Radar Podcast, brought to you by the team behind BikeRadar.com, Cycling Plus and MBUK magazines. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe. And if you can do so, leave us a rating on your podcast provider of choice. It really helps us reach other cyclists like you. Hello and welcome to the Bike Radar Podcast. I'm Jack Evans, one of Bike Radar's digital writers. This week I'm joined by a very special guest former World Tour professional turned gravel racing supremo, Ian Boswell. Ian raced at World Tour level for Team Sky, then Katusha, competing all three Grand Tours. But he suffered multiple concussions from crashes during seven years, which forced him to retire from road racing in 2019, aged just 28. Following an arduous recovery from concussion, last year Ian won one of gravel's marquee races, the 200-mile Unbound Gravel. He now presents his own podcast and is a Wahoo ambassador, Representing the brand's Wahoo Frontiers gravel racing team. But before we begin, please remember to share and subscribe to the podcast. How are you? Um, have you been out this morning? Um, it's about yeah. It is. It's about nine o'clock over in Vermont. Is it?
0: Yeah, I have not. No, it's still winter time here. The roads are still warm. It's been warmer recently, so I've, I rode it inside on the kicker for a bit, just for like twenty minutes. But yeah, still winter time here. So maybe this afternoon it's supposed to warm up, but yeah roads are still pretty sloppy
1: and messy and what and icy. yeah and um is that is 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 a is, is the tool like the kicker a, a pretty key part of your your training this time of year because of the as you mentioned the roads and the darkness of the winter too yeah definitely
0: i mean just i mean one the, the climate where we live is you know not the most conducive spot to be for uh, a cyclist you know I mix it up with like some skiing here and there but you know I spend pretty much from like November through really March you know most all the riding I do is is indoors you know once in a while if the conditions are right I'll, I'll go out and ride my fat bike but especially now with having a, a little one around my wife and I had a our first child back in December so yeah it seems to be uh, you know a lot of riding indoors which is also it's it's incredibly e- efficient as well especially when you look at the winter riding here you know it takes so long to get dressed and then clean everything afterwards um you know i can go down into the basement and you know do an hour hour ride in an hour and five minutes you know pretty much just throw on a pair of shorts and an undershirt and you're set to go
1: that sounds very much like the conditions we've we've got in the uk um yeah the turbo trainer in the winter um, is just an absolute godsend um like you mentioned it's just the the half an hour that you use getting all your warm clothes on for a ride then cleaning your bike at the end um yeah it really really makes a difference and um yeah something like uh, um yeah a, a turbo trainer and um, following a program like that um personally for me that um add, adds to the motivation um how how many how many hours do you manage to do a week over the winter and how does your how much is your training ch- different from when you were a pro road rider?
0: I mean, it couldn't be more different. Someone was just asking me the other day, you know, I used to try to avoid New England winters like the Play when I was racing at, at, you know, Katusha and Team Sky, you know, anytime I'd maybe come back for like a week over Christmas, but then pretty much just jet back to, to Nice where I could ride outdoors. You know, I guess if I look back through the last couple months, you know, like I said, with, you know, working full-time at Wahoo, plus having a child and all sorts of other things, you know, probably on-bike time has probably only been around, like, maybe eight eight to ten hours a week from I'm lucky. You know, maybe a couple of weeks I have a few more hours in there if I do a, a cross-country ski or a backcountry ski. But I'm always amazed that actually a week and a half ago I was out in Southern California for a week on a work trip, and I think I did almost 30 hours. And so it's, it's amazing, really, how how efficient you can be riding indoors. And you know, while the, the overall volume is never going to be the same, at least for someone like myself, you know, I don't really do five hour rides inside. You know, I think the most I'll do is, you know, maybe an hour and a half at a time. I'm um, usually like 45 minutes, but maybe I'll do two sessions a day. But really how quickly that translates to being able to go outside and ride for, you know, five, six hours, you know, I was a little bit scared to head out to California knowing that it's going to be good weather and I'd be doing some long rides. But it's amazing just by kind of staying active and, you know, riding regularly, kind of more the consistency, um, I think for myself at this point in time, is more important than the overall volume. But, you know, back in the World Tour days, you know, you're consistently doing, you know, 25 hours a week from, you know, November through to the start of the race season in February. And, and now, you know, it's much more like, you know, 8, 9, 10, kind of in, in that range, at least stuff on the bike.
1: Yeah, and coming back to your, your skiing, I mean, that sounds terrific fun, um, but is it valuable cross-training too for cycling?
0: I mean, cross-country skiing, definitely. I mean, that's, I was out uh, last weekend and did a, maybe it was like a 14-mile ski, maybe it was like just under two hours with a buddy, and like that was, that was harder than the six-hour bike route. I did the weekend before out in California. Um, that really kicks your butt. And then the, the backcountry skiing, you know, where you kinda have the skins on your skis and you go up the, you know, skin up to the top of the mountain, ski down, it's not maybe as intense um as cycling. You know, oftentimes I'm with some friends, we're kind of just, you know, at a very social pace. But I think for myself at this point in time, just with my life and career and everything, you know, I think the important thing for me is just to stay active. You know, I know that come springtime, you know, the weather will warm up and I'll be able to log. You know, a few long rides here and there, whether it's here in Vermont or some, you know, kind of trips and training camps in other places. But I think for me, the most important thing is just kind of staying active from you know November through March. You know, just kind of doing anything that keeps me, you know, moving, but also just keeps me, you know, sane, but you know, also happy. You know, for you know some people, they can go into the, you know, their wherever their trainer set up and do five, six hour rides. I can't do that. So for me, it's just like diversifying, and mixing up my training enough to keep it all fun. And I think that's kind of the ultimate thing at this point in my life is if it's not fun, I'm not going to do it. And so, you know, being a bad skier has been a fun process of you know, trying to get better. But, you know, at the same time, I'm also not training for, you know, paris anymore in, in March. So I guess the, the expectations of when I need to be kind of ready and the demands of the races are very different now than, than what they were a couple of years ago.
1: Yeah, are those... um. Uh, gravel riding goals uh well it'd be good to good to know um what what they are if you have um um sort of cemented them already but are they going to come a bit later in the year because they're not going to be sort of uh spring classic style races is it going to going to be more a summer peak that you're looking for yeah
0: i mean the whole the whole gravel thing kind of where i'm at it is it's still somewhat perplexing and funny to me, you know, cause I did very much like retire from pro red basin and, you know, I took a full-time position at Wahoo in 20, beginning of 2020. And just kind of knowing that, you know, cool. Like we're going to be at some of these events anyways. I still love riding my bike. I'll participate and, you know, kind of just see how I do. I really kind of blew away my expectations last year and the success and I guess the performances that I had, um, which has kind of been, it was awesome. You know, I won't, well, I think winning unbound was probably the biggest race I won in my entire career, which is ironic coming, you know, after I stopped trying so hard, but I think kind of keeping that perspective into to this year is super important for me, you know, just realizing that, you know, I, I'm at a different you know, chapter in my life. You know, of course I still love, riding my bike. I still love going fast. I still love being competitive, but it's not, you know, it's not my full time job anymore. So making sure, like I said, to to keep it fun, you know, so, but that does kind of allow me to kind of pick and choose races that suit kind of where I live and in my work schedule a bit better. So, yeah, I mean, you know, Unbound isn't until early June. So that's kind of like the big, you know, obviously the biggest event that I'll head to this year. Um, and kind of the, you know, kind of the target for the season. But at the same time, you know, it's like trying to not put, you know, like I said, it, my life doesn't really change if I go back and win that event again or not. Still have a job. I still have, you know, you know, plenty of other things in my life that bring me bring me joy. But yeah, really, kind of that unbound, and you know, obviously SBT and you know a few other races here and there. But just kind of you know going to these events with a sense of, you know, making them making sure i'm having fun while while there is, is still kind of a key to why i'm doing this
1: and do you plan to intersperse a few local gravel sportives or multi-terrain sportives into your calendar um when you're say back in vermont
0: yeah yeah so there's a, a number of events so the first race i'll go to is the croaton buck 50 it's down in north carolina um and that's kind of the, the beauty of the you know the I don't to say the unorganization, but kind of the sporadic nature of gravel racing at the moment is you can kind of pick and choose events that you want to, want to go to. Um, you know, and I decided to not participate in the, in the lifetime series, um, kind of for just that reason that, you know, I kind of wanted to pick races that, you know, were in cool places or, you know, that friends put on that I you know wanted to go see them. Um, but yeah, there's a handful of races here in Vermont. So there's, you know, the Raspetitsa, which is like only about 20 minutes down the road. There's another one in, um, the week before in April called the muddy onion. And then, uh, Ted King puts on the rooted Vermont and my buddy Ansel puts on the Vermont overland. So, um, those four events, plus my wife and I put on a non-competitive event in September called the peach and fall fondo. So That's five events that are all, you know, here in Vermont and yeah, they're competitive, but they're, you know, we can make a family weekend trip out of it. You know, we can go camp and have fun and, you know, it's, uh, I mean, it's just, uh, It's funny to me how I guess it's not funny. It's not surprising that gravel has become so competitive. But I guess that's kind of where I'm, you know, maybe a little bit more unique in my approach is like I'm I'm still doing this because it's fun. And the minute it becomes like a job and, you know, there's pressure and I'm, you know, expected to get results, that's when it's, you know, kind of gone, you know, a little bit kind of back to that pro racing lifestyle, which is something that I'm not really you know, I've done that and I've uh, you know ticked those boxes and I enjoyed it but I, I think at this point you know I'm trying to keep the the balance of life as much as possible
1: and um, as the as we speak today um, the UCI um, gravel calendar has leaked this morning um I know that's not something um, that that interests you um, as you've just explained there but um, what what are your general impressions of that calendar it's quite an international calendar
0: yeah so I spoke with um, I didn't speak with anyone ever at the UCI but I spoke with some folks at USA cycling um, kind of on the eve of the announcement back at the the road worlds um, and, and I hadn't really heard anything of it prior to to that and I think it's, it was really only a matter of time before it kind of came you know came about just because gravel racing here in the US has become so big and I think it's only a matter of time before the, the global interest kind of becomes you know kind of swells with You know everything in cycling. You know there tends to be trends, whether it's mountain biking in the 90s or you know now gravel. You know I guess I've, I've thought a lot about you know that and the lifetime series. And I guess my perspective is like there's so many races out there. There's some awesome events that have been around a long time. There's new events that are constantly popping up, and you know hopefully it just allows more people to to find you know their unique way to to ride bikes and to explore and be part of a, you know, not just a gravel cycling community, but really a global cycling community. So by no means am I against it. You know, like I said, Mm -hmm. it's not really for for me and my point in my career at this moment in time. Like I don't feel a need to be world champion. (laughs) Um, It doesn't really like, I don't really have like a hunger to be like, Oh, I'm the best. Um, I think that's one of the coolest things that I experienced this year in gravel racing was that, you know, all these races were so different and you know, it, it suited different people in different races and, you know, the fact that, you know, I was able to win Unbound, but, you know, Lawrence was able to win the race. We did the migration race in Kenya and Pete won BWR and Alex Howes won SBT. I think that's awesome. I think like it's cool to see different names at the front of these races. Um, and equally, one of the things that I have really enjoyed seeing in Gravel here in North America is the, the rise of maybe athletes who wouldn't otherwise have, you know, the same platform and recognition to kind of make them make themselves known and build a career out of it. Um, you know, being a professional road cyclist is a pretty hard nut to crack and it's not for everyone. And I think it's been cool to see that the rise of of gravel and mixed surface races have allowed, you know, different athletes with kind of different attitudes and perspectives and, you know, approaches to, to be successful and to make a career out of it. So I just hope that, you know, going forward that, you know, the UCI races and, you know, Lifetime, they all have their place, but I just hope that, you know, the I guess the category as a whole can continue to, you know, accommodate all different people with different approaches
1: to the sport. So, so if um, a UCI-sanctioned Gravel World Championships did appear, could you see actually that being the preserve of pro road riders rather than uh, dedicated gravel racers? Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Mick Crispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
0: I would think so. Yeah. I mean, I think just with it being UCI, I think, you know, and I have no idea what the UCI's plan is as far as like, do people have to be on a whereabouts program? Do they have to have a a pro license? Like what dictates a pro license versus an amateur license? There's a lot of details that currently aren't in place in gravel, which make it so much fun that, you know, you have 4,000 people on the start line and then first one back wins. And I don't know how the UCI is planning on tackling that. But I would assume that you know, just with the the prestige of you know it being a UCI event, that a lot of pro teams would participate. And I think you know whether it's from you know the teams themselves or kind of partners that are you know with these teams, you know, predominantly bike partners. Um, I would imagine that there would be some sort of you know kind of emphasis of hey, we should send Vanderpool and Bernard and Pitcock to these events um, because you know it is you know probably is going to be televised internationally and it is a world stage and there's a rainbow jersey so i would imagine we you know we'd see a lot of kind of the road pro road teams attend those events
1: could you pick a winner if you're a betting man Lutsenko is um, a dark horse
0: yeah yeah i mean it's funny i raced with Lutsenko a lot as so, i guess junior under 23 and and pro yeah he's clearly got the clearly got the skills but you know there's no question in my mind that those athletes are at like a completely different level um and I guess from what I've heard, that the UCI races won't be—they're not going to be a 200-mile event like Unbound. They might be, you know, 80 or 100 miles, which is going to be more in line with kind of what those athletes are already doing on the road. So, yeah, I mean, I think if you—and and who knows—is there going to be team tactics involved? Are there going to be, you know, what's the—you know—what are the courses going to look like? I think there's a lot of factors that might, you know, play into the hands of the the pro road riders. But yeah, I mean Lutsenko. I mean, I think if you know, if Pidcock and Bernard and Vanderpool, those guys came, you know, even someone like Sagan, especially having a full, you know, road season under their belt, I think the UCI World Championships would probably be one of the last races of the, obviously, of their calendar, which would put it kind of at the end of the the summer, early autumn. You know, those those riders should be in in pretty darn good form.
1: Yeah, definitely, especially um, uh, fol- yeah, fol- following following that form in the world championship, yeah, the road world championships last year talking of team tactics are are there are there a place in gravel for team tactics or is that in your view breaking one of the unwritten rules of gravel that it is mainly a self-sufficient self-supported pursuit
0: yeah I mean it's it's you know and it's funny that I sometimes get roped into these conversations because you know I last year is my first year doing gravel and I did a total of seven races. Um, So I don't really feel like I'm a voice of, you know, what the sport should do. Um, I think, you know, sometimes just with the results I had last year, I kind of get brought into the conversation. Um, But one thing I really enjoyed with the events that I did do last year was they were very much a test of an individual's preparation and, you know, equipment choice and, and all these, you know, kind of very personal decisions that one would make. And I really loved kind of the the pure spirit of it last year, You know, where it very much was like, you know, mano a mano. And I think that, you know, in all the races I did, that you know, whether I won or I didn't, I was so satisfied with kind of how the race played out. You know, at the end of SBT, when when Alex Howes won, someone asked me, like, hey, are you disappointed you didn't win? I was like, no, like, Alex smoked me in the sprint. And there was no, like you know, there was no toying of of tactics. Like, oh, he didn't pull or he had a teammate or, you know, this or that. It was very much like rider against rider and the strongest rider won. And I found something very kind of pure and, you know, rewarding in in that style of race. This is something that, you know, as a junior once in a while you you experience, you know, when you kind of, you know, you're either strong enough to ride away or, you know, you're not strong enough to follow. But in road race, you know, there's so many tactics that kind of come into play with who's going to ultimately win the race. And I thought it was cool that, you know, there was this sense of you know the strongest rider won and i think there'll continue to be events like that but i also equally think and kind of feel like there will be events you know for example like the the uci series that you know maybe maybe it is an interesting trial to see what what team tactics look like and you know on my own podcast you know i'd spoken with uh, a guy yuri oswald who won unbound back in 2016 kind of one of like the original gravel riders and, you know one of my thoughts and i pitch this over to usa cycling for the uci series is i think it'd be cool to like you know make it a make their series a gravel race but make it something completely different make it 80 miles make it teams of 3 with full team tactics because i think for for television that would be super fun and interesting if you had this completely different dynamic than than what we currently have in gravel you know rather than trying to like copy and paste it into a you know a big series that is essentially the same thing but with you know maybe more money and kind of more prestige you know make it something more extreme make it different you know make it teams of three and there's team tactics and you know maybe it's a 20 mile circuit that you add up to 80 miles I think something like that could be could be really fun and you could also you know it'd be easier to televise if it was in a in a circuit format and I would definitely tune in to watch that I would love to see you know Pitcock against you know with three your two teammate it's a team inios go against three guys from you know Alpes and Phoenix I think that would be that'd be really fun to watch
1: yeah that sounds like a fantastic idea um Perhaps around a well, a forestry loop, maybe, or um, yeah, some 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 gravel roads where it would almost be like an extended cyclocross circuit. Yeah, um, I, I, I can re- yeah. really see that yeah, catching on. Yeah.
0: and I mean, I think something like that could also be cool because you could also kind of bring in different riders with different skill sets. You know, you could bring, you could make a composite team of you know Pete Stetna, you know, Colin Strickland, and some Russell Finsterwald against you know three riders from the World Tour. So you kind of have these. You know, road riders that are out of place racing gravel, but you have these gravel riders that are out of place racing with road tactics, and you kind of like make them meet in the middle. But I'm not on the I'm not on the board of USA Cycling or <laughs> UCI. I don't think they're really going to listen to my my perspective.
1: I'm sure they listen to the Bike Radar podcast. So <laughs> let's let's hope they uh, they take your advice. Um besides the um, differences you've mentioned uh, between uh, racing gravel and racing on the road, the distance the absence or presence of of team tactics what are the other key differences
0: you know there's a lot and i guess you know my perspective and experience racing pro road was you know different than i would say most people because i was on you know big world tour teams with buses and chefs and mechanics which is all great you know it's something you definitely need at the highest level when you're going against you know the the fittest and most prepared athletes in the world but i've really enjoyed kind of getting back to being responsible for you know i guess entirely for myself you know whether it's booking flights you know looking after your bike you know figuring out you know packing your bags for you know something like unbound you know what are you going to put in your hydration pack you know what bottles are you going to prepare it's allowed a lot of kind of creative experimentation which sometimes you don't you know oftentimes on the on the bigger world tour teams you're very much not necessarily told but advised what to do and how to do it but the the beauty of you know gravel is you can kind of experiment and do you know you're really you're really responsible for yourself you know you know i was pumping up my tires on the start line of unbound because i was like oh, i forgot to pump up my tires this morning you know just little things like that that are it kind of takes out the the pressure of it in a sense and you're very responsible for yourself and your own actions and i think that's you know that's great there's no there's no excuse like, oh, my mechanic did this or my, you know, the, I forgot to pick up a bottle in the feed zone because this one you screwed up. It's very much like, hey, it was my, <laughs> like I, I put my bike together. I, you know, prepared my hydration packs. I packed my pockets with food. I think there's a, a very refreshing kind of sense of self-responsibility for myself, at least kind of going back to you know, really those early days of when I first started racing a bike and you're kind of, you know, solely responsible for, for everything from you know pumping up your tires to making sure you have the proper food in your pockets
1: i wonder in a way if that's improved your uh, understanding of nutrition and mechanics because um of having to take responsibility for it yourself and uh with that in mind what advice would you give our, our listeners who are thinking of taking on a, a gravel race or a large gravel sportive? F- yeah in terms of um of, of their kit they're taking on the bike and, and how they're fueling and it before and and during the ride
0: yeah i think the biggest thing is and it's something that you know pro road teams talk about a lot as well but it's really just practice everything don't put on a new pair of tires the night before a big race because you know you feel like you should you know know your equipment, know your nutrition, you know, and some of the big training rides that you do before an event practice, the nutrition that you're going to eat, make sure that, you know, what you're planning to eat during the race works with your body and your, you know, your system and in, in training. Um, it's one of the things, you know, even in the world tour, sometimes, you know, you don't, you know, there's race, there's more of an, a focus on, on the nutrition, but I think in the, a lot of these long gravel events, the nutrition is even more important. You something like unbound, you're riding for, you know, fastest riders doing it in 10 and a half hours, the slowest is, you know, taking up to 18 hours. So your fueling is is incredibly important. So you know, knowing what you're gonna be eating and, and just practicing that and making sure it works with your body. And then just, I mean, to be all and honest, like to, to train your gut, I mean, it's an incredible amount of food that you have to eat in some of these long events. You know, we spend so much time focusing on our, you know, equipment and you know, training our bodies, but we sometimes forget about training our our gut to be able to digest the quantity of of just calories you need to consume in some of these long events. And the amount of people, especially in an event like Unbound, where it can be hot as well, the people that don't finish the race because they have stomach problems, you know, there's a, a huge percentage of people that don't finish for just that reason because they just can't eat anymore, they can't drink anymore because their stomach just can't handle it. So really, just practicing practicing that in training which is a great problem to have. You get to <laughs> eat more and, you know, find the foods that, that are tasty. think, you know, one of the best pieces of advice is I got was, you know, the best food to be carrying in your pocket is something you actually want to eat. And then I would say, you know, keeping a, a range of, of foods in your pocket as well. You know, sometimes you can get very quickly burnt out on, on sweet stuff. So, you know, carrying a range of, you know, sweet stuff, salty stuff, just foods that, you know, you might want to eat over the course of, of 10 hours.
1: What are your favorite sweet and savory things to have on the bike?
0: Oh boy! So I work with a company called Picky Bars, which is actually a friend started out in Oregon, and they make a, like a mostly date based bars. And I eat a lot of those. And they have you know some flavors that are more savory, you know like a Moroccan uh, mint, and they have like a chai flavor. But then they equally have you know a peanut butter chocolate flavor bar. So I eat a lot of those just because it also seems to be very satiating you know, and have a lot of nuts in it. Um, And there are other various, you know, kind of bars that are similar out there. Um, I don't take very many like gels just because I have eaten plenty of those in my career. And, you know, I prefer to definitely be chewing something than I do to be just gulping something down. And then I use a, a high carbohydrate drink mix called Flow Formula, which is, you know, I think it's 350 calories per bottle. And I'm pretty much just constantly, you know, in a long event, just, you know, taking that down pretty much from start to finish, you know, I'll carry some little sachets in my, in my Jersey. So at the aid stations, you know, when we stop and fill up our bottles, I can just dump another sachet into the bottle. So I'm you know, kind of always being topped up and yeah, some of the the savory things once in a while, I'll have like a little bit of beef jerky, um, which sounds kind of funny, but sometimes just having something a little bit salty and savory rice, crispy treats, things that are just a little bit, you know, kind of almost in a sense that kind of cleanse your palate from, from eating just purely sweet things.
1: Mm. and how has your approach to nutrition evolved um and changed since you were a pro um i can't imagine that team sky that creamies were allowed
0: no i mean i've always loved ice cream um, but i get to eat a lot more ice cream i guess that you know it's funny i'm definitely not as you know light as i as i was racing in the world tour but at the same time
1: how light were you in if you don't mind me asking
0: uh, it was always a little, it was always a range. Um, mm. I think maybe the lightest I ever was, was before the tour in 2018. I think I was like maybe down to, goodness, was I down to like 67 kilo or something? But even like, you know, throughout my entire pro career, I, you know, range between, you know, I guess 67 being the lightest and then usually around like 69 to, to 72 was kind of, you know, the, the range during race season. I also have a body that for whatever reason more so when I was racing on the road, seemed to fluctuate a lot. And it's been interesting. And you know, I think a lot of that was just due to your body being so efficient at, you know, fueling that, you know, if you took a couple of days off, you know, you could pretty quickly tack on a couple of kilos of, you know, whether it's water weight or just, you know, kind of fluid retention. You know, the funny thing is now I don't really weigh myself hardly ever you know, kind of eat what I want when I I want. And it's amazing kind of how stable my body has become. And I think it's also just a factor of probably in a large sense, being more kind of balanced and just, you know, giving myself what I want when I want it. You know, still, I've always enjoyed eating, eating healthy and well. But because of that, you know, when I have a break off the bike, it's not like I'm like, oh, I got to eat all these things that I haven't eaten in four months. So my body's, for whatever reason, just seem to like stabilize and, you know, Like I said, I don't don't weigh myself, but just, you know, kind of how I feel. I'd say my weight is much more stable now than it was. I've also started eating, especially around races, a lot more carbohydrates. It's something that, you know, kind of when I joined Team Sky in 2013, it was kind of the new, you know, rage was, you know, kind of low-carbohydrate training and not low-carbohydrate diet per se, but, you know, timing carbohydrates around specific training rides and intervals and whatnot. And it's one thing now I, I just realize that i've got to fuel myself and especially for these long events you know very seldom is your body weight make a huge difference you know we're not doing fifteen thousand feet of climbing in the alps um day after day so the to carry a couple extra kilos is not the the end of the world so just being like topped up on yeah whether it's creamies or burritos are kind of my uh definite pre-race go-to meal
1: and for the benefit of our listeners um creamies are there are soft serve ice cream in Vermont, is that correct?
0: Yeah, I mean, it was actually, it was like a marketing push. I think back in like the 60s or 70s here in Vermont where you have a lot of dairy farms around us, um, less so now than there were, but yeah, there was a, a surplus of, of cream and farmers were trying to find a way to, I guess, rebrand soft serve ice cream. So they came up with with Creamy, which is, yeah, C-R-E-E-M-E-E. But traditionally in Vermont, yeah, they're, they're sweetened with maple syrup. So maple Creamy is, yeah, that's my... Uh, that's my favorite ice cream and it's it's nice that they are seasonal i mean winters here are so cold and long it's pretty hard to find a creamy stand that's open right now but from you know late may through october probably get a couple creamies a week and, and they're a great thing on a ride you know it's mm. again it's uh it's fuel and it's also <laughs> makes me happy to to ride my bike
1: up to a creamy stand and get a big a big honking creamy <laughs> that must be one of the many reasons um other former pro riders um like yourself are turning to gravel as well it's the it's the the more relaxed atmosphere and that extends to the racing training and eating doesn't it
0: yeah and and that kind of you know goes back to what i said earlier which is funny because i mean it definitely is much more relaxed but i feel like it's becoming more serious you know there are more athletes doing it and you know i think when you know you look back at maybe kind of the, the pioneer of pro road riders who've gone to gravel, you know, Ted King was one of the first people. And it was kind of just by like coincidence that he's, you know, started going to these events and was doing well. And, you know, then able to kind of extend his racing career. And then, you know, Pete Stetna found, found gravel and, you know, myself kind of through a different avenue of, you know, still being at these events anyways, but I do feel like it is becoming more competitive. You know, I, I with my role at Wahoo, you know, I work with, you know, Pete Stetna and Colin Strickland because they're both Wahoo athletes you know pete in particular i'm like dude like you're doing as many races as you were when you're racing on the road like this doesn't seem you know all that relaxing anymore but you know they each their own and it's cool to see that people are able to kind of you know prolong their career in a sense
1: when um, gravel becoming more competitive and serious will we see gravel bikes getting faster the ones that are raced in things like unbound or is the terrain of those races just too rough for basically a road bike with wider tires
0: I mean, we've already seen a huge evolution in, in gravel bikes. You know, I got my first gravel bike, I guess it was really in late 2019, I got like the first specialized Diverge. I think it was like a 2019 edition and it was a great bike. But when I look at that compared to the Diverge, or I guess now when I'm riding on the, the Crux, it's just so much lighter. And you, I think the biggest difference is the, ability to put in bigger tires you know, the tire volume has, you know, gone up, you know, will we ever see aero gravel bikes, you know, possibly, you know, there's this whole debate of around aero bars that, you know, some of these gravel events and, you know, most of the speeds that are winning these events is like around 20 miles an hour, you know, around 30 K an hour. So aerodynamics is definitely important, but... It's not quite as important as, you know, maybe in a road race or, you know, especially a time trial when you're averaging. What did, what did that Swiss rider at EF just do in...
1: Oh, Bissinger. You know, he
0: did, yeah, he did like 55k an hour. I'm like, mm. well, aerodynamics play a much bigger factor at 55k an hour than 30-some-odd than k an hour. So it is a factor, and maybe as the races get faster, it'll become more of a point of focus for, for manufacturers. But we'll see We'll see what happens with the bikes. And I, one thing I've kind of loved about seeing the evolution of gravel bikes is they've just become more in a sense more universal i mean the bike that i'm riding now the the specialized crocs it's like it's just like the bike i can i can do a crit on that bike i can do a road race on that bike i can do unbound on that bike you know you can essentially just change the tires and you have a bike that can pretty much do do anything you know i can take it on mountain bike trails with big enough tires so it's cool to see that you know while gravel bikes have become more specific they've also become in a sense more universal
1: and for for um, the longer gravel events you're doing will everyone be on really quite wide tires up to 40 mil and tubeless or is there even a bit of variation there
0: yeah i mean different riders you know depending on kind of just the the course and you know what the weather conditions are like um funny enough i actually did every single race last year barring in one of the races at the beginning of the year on the same pair of tires yeah i'm riding like the the specialized pathfinder pro 42 and i rode that like not even just the same like style of tire, but the same tires i just made sure i filled up sealant and i rode those in, in unbound i rode those in kenya i rode those at SBT. yeah and it seemed like from for myself it just seemed like an awesome tire and it's something i was riding all the time so i kind of knew you know how it handled and how it felt and you know i think people are starting to experiment a bit more with tires and tire pressure you know i'm not the most tech savvy person out there so i just kind of you know pump up my tire until it feels like it has enough and you know Probably run more pressure than, than most just because I have a road background and that's kind of what I'm used to. But I think there is a huge kind of movement towards people paying more attention to tires, especially people who've come from a mountain bike background. You know, they tend to be running lower pressure, you know, wider tires. You know, I, I haven't spent enough time on a mountain bike to really kind of know the difference between running 30 PSI and 45 PSI. So I tend to kind of always be on the, on the higher side just because that's usually what I ride with around here at my house.
1: Oh, that's fascinating, yeah. And this is this is quite difficult to call. But where can you see gravel racing being in five years' time? I mean, the change in the previous five years must have been staggering in terms of not just sheer numbers, but yeah, maybe twenty twenty seven. What do you have any predictions?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to say. You know, I do see there being kind of a, an increase number of, you know, kind of these bigger high profile pro series, you know, whether it's lifetime, whether it's the UCI, which I said like, you know, I don't have, I don't have an issue with, you know, it's probably not for me and my lifestyle at the moment. The one thing I would just hope is that there's still this kind of influx of these, you know, not necessarily smaller, but these, you know, kind of grassroots, local events and, you know, small towns, whether it's, you know, in, you know, the Midwest of the US or, you know, even popping up globally where they find, you know, a kind of just a growing network of people who can come out and participate and enjoy these events. I think that's one thing I'd really love to see is, you know, as these series become kind of bigger and more professional and the top riders become kind of more marquee and ultimately the races become faster, there's still an emphasis on some of these smaller events and kind of local, more regional events to allow people to just get out and ride their bikes with other people. It's something that, you know, when I look at my calendar for the coming year that i'm trying to mix is the, you know, the big races you know the unbounds the SBTs, with events that are kind of local and regional that i can go to and you know you don't even have to race you know go ride hard have fun you know maybe help my buddy try to win or stop and enjoy the rest stops um i just hope that we kind of keep a, a big yeah a big pot of races of all mm-hmm. different you know kind of intensities and variety
1: H- how comfortable do you feel um with gravel racing becoming more serious and probably faster as well, given your history of of crashes and concussions. Is it was it six concussions you suffered in your road career before your retirement in 2019?
0: Yeah, yeah. It's something that I guess you know. Last year, I was very fortunate to where you know the races were were definitely hard, and you know there's there's always going to be an inherent risk of you know crashing when you're on a bike. But I was able to kind of you know in a sense mitigate my risk. Just by kind of using more strength, you know, like go back and look, you know, whether it's unbound or SBT, you know, after a lot of the technical sections, you know, I was like, well off the front group, just because I wasn't willing to take that risk in those technical sections, you know. Thankfully, just through, and especially when there's, you know, when you hit a section that has, and you still have 500 people, it's gonna be a lot more dangerous than if you hit that section with 10 people. You know, so I was luckily. I'm not sure if this is still gonna be the case this year, but you know, able to kind of just ride back to the front group when we hit a a bigger, more open road. You know, and and as I said, you know, this isn't my my full-time job anymore. And the last thing I want to do on a, you know, a weekend when I choose to travel away from my house with my wife and our child is call my wife from a hospital and say, you know, I've got a broken bone or I hit my head again. So safety is still something that I'm very aware of. And so I think just, you know, as the races get faster, it's obviously going to become more challenging to kind of use the the tactic that I've used in the past which is you know play it safe and then kind of burn some energy to catch up but at the same time you know I feel like these races there's so many more factors to the race rather than just being constantly in the front you know the faster you go over a technical section the more likely you are to puncture as well which you know is going to take a lot longer than closing a 30 45 second gap because you you rode safely through it so I think there there's still maybe some some wiggle room for myself to kind of implement the same level of risk analysis and, and still
1: try to be in the front group and is that key to how you've um you've managed the the mental recovery from um yeah from leaving the road uh, following those concussions to yeah becoming a, a gravel rider just sort of managing the risk whereas in in road racing perhaps you just didn't have the choice you just had to follow on a technical section or not a technical section say um through the bunch or on a downhill but Gravel racing allows you to pick the moments when you, when you, when you keep up and when you slow down.
0: Yeah, and and like I said, I think for the moment you know, the the level has been high, but I've kind of been able to you know offset some of my lack of risk um just through like strength. You know, last week I was watching the I was at the Tour of not Haut tour Tour Mediterranean or Maritime Alps, and uh they came over this descent that I rode all the time when I was living in Nice, the Chateau Neuf descent. It's like I think it's got like 20 something switchbacks and like 5k and Caleb Ewan was on the front and I was just like oh my gosh I remember racing down that a couple times in Paris-Nice and just being like you have to you can't let the wheel go. You know it's uh you know thankfully more often than not I was with Team Sky and we were riding the front so you kind of have a, a front row seat but you know the risk that you see these riders take in the road professional road racing is it's just astronomical and you know the minute you get dropped you can't can't go back to the team bus and say hey I, I just let the wheel go. Cause I didn't want to take that risk. You know, they can find someone else who will take that risk. And thankfully for the moment in, in gravel, you know, I have not put myself or found myself in that situation where, you know, I've had to take risk beyond what I feel, feel comfortable with. And I'm sure that'll, you know, there'll be times this year I can guarantee where I'll, you know, maybe not be at the front of the race because, you know, there's risks that I'm not willing to take, but equally, like, as I said, you know, this isn't my, this isn't my full-time job anymore. It's not, you know, it's not really a, a do or die situation where I have to make that split. Yeah, there's still plenty of, you know, ways I can contribute to a race, whether it's helping, you know, people in the back pull back up to the front because you know we got behind in the technical section. You know, I think just kind of keeping that perspective as well that, you know, regardless, there's always going to be someone ahead of you and there's always gonna be someone behind you, and you'll always find someone to to ride with and kind of share that experience with.
1: Would you be able to de- describe the ways you've managed your mental recovery in terms of regaining confidence on the bike following those crashes, or is it is it still a work in in progress and has doing more off-roading um gravel riding um helps with that does it does it feel less um anxiety ridden than road riding
0: yeah i mean i I still even notice it you know i was when i was out of california a bit over a week ago you know we were on some big robo descents and the tighter the turns and for some for whatever reason i still struggle with left hand turns um and that's you know Pretty much across the board, whether I'm you know on road, pavement, if I'm skiing, there's something that happened that, um, kind of my body doesn't want to commit to going left, and I'm just, I guess, I'm just aware of it. And I think, you know, had I gone back to pro road racing, I probably would have been more forced to kind of overcome that that weakness or that challenge. You know, I guess, you know, having just raced at a high level, you know, I guess maybe the level of risk that I see in you know, high speed descent is maybe less. So than someone who's never been going at 40 miles an hour down a downhill, but knowing that, you know, some of the best descenders in the world, you know, that they, they don't feel risk even at the, the highest speeds on the wettest, slipperiest descents. So it's something I continue to kind of work on, but probably more so than anything, it's just being aware of kind of where I find my limit and just, you know, I haven't really gone over that. I think that's one thing. Had I been, you know, still racing on the road, I would have, you know, had to kind of break through that barrier of what I feel confident with doing. And I just haven't uh, haven't been put in a position, and haven't just been willing to kind of go beyond my my comfort level. But yeah, it was a, I mean, it was a process to just be able to get back to to riding and you know feeling comfortable riding outside on open roads. You know, thankfully where we live in, in northern Vermont, the roads are really quiet. And you don't have many cars, and so you very seldom kind of have those sketchy situations as well. But yeah, I think it's just being. I mean, maybe part of it comes with just age and maturity, just being a little bit more wise and conscious of you know the the risks you know especially in whether it's these gravel events or just training you know these are open roads and you never know what's going to be around a blind turn you know someone could be parked there could be gravel on the road you know just kind of in general just riding with a lot bigger sense of kind of caution is something that I've noticed has been you know a huge difference and you know a lot with that also goes just the loss of of ego you know I don't if I'm on a descent with a bunch of friends and I don't mind taking it slow just say hey i'll meet you at the bottom like i'm not gonna i'm not gonna race down this downhill on a training ride to show off my my
1: skills and and um that that must take a a great deal of of self-awareness and it's it's um it's sort of confidence in itself to to be confident that you can admit guys i'm feeling a bit nervous here um and is that something that cycling needs to develop in general, a bit more sort of the ability to admit that you're not feeling you're not feeling good and trying to dispel the mat, the macho illusions about whether it's road riding or gravel riding.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think definitely that in, in a perfect world we could we could address that and you know it could be an open discussion and, and conversation. But at the same time, you know when you look at the kind of the peak of you know professional cycling, there are athletes who you know really excel on on downhills and that's to their advantage to kind of push that pace. You know, so to, to take away that you know skill and talent and really ability that some of these riders have, you can't really neutralize the descents. Um, mm. Just because for some riders that is that is a huge advantage they have over over other athletes. And you know, again, with with professional road racing, you know, you kind of have to. You're in a sense you're forced to kind of follow the wheel in front of you because you know you know if you get to the bottom and you've let a 10-second gap go, you may not you may not be able to close it. In gravel cycling, up to the, up until now, you know more often than not, kind of the the races regroup. And in in a sense, you know, when you look at a 10-hour race, everything's kind of a little bit more drawn out than a, you know, road race where the speeds are higher. And, you know, the higher the speeds, you know, obviously the quicker gaps open and and things kind of develop. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, sport we've seen, I mean, even just in my, you know, I guess 10-plus years of racing in the World Tour and now in gravel, there's, I feel like, a lot more space for athletes to kind of raise their voice, whether it's with mental health or just, you know, comfort or, you know, issues that they're having off the bike. There is an increased kind of space for athletes to, to voice their concern, which is great to see. We still have a long way to go, but, you know, I see it a lot more now than when I, you know, kind of first became a professional rider back in 2013.
1: Well, that that, that is that is really promising. Um, and what advice would you give to a rider, whether they're an amateur or a professional um how to rebound from a crash um personally i was i was hit by a car while riding last august and probably felt i did get back into fast group riding a little bit too quickly um are there any experiences you can draw on to 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 give advice there
0: yeah i mean i think just the biggest thing is is take your time and i think you know in in my personal kind of experience you know I had this internal instinct of like you know I, I have to ride, and and the months that I didn't ride following my crash in, in 2019, you know, that was incredibly challenging you know physically and mentally to not be able to to go out and ride. And I think you know one thing that I found that was super helpful in the beginning was riding my my fat bike. You know I had bigger tires and wider wider handlebars, and the speeds were slower. So I think you know finding a way to come back at your own pace, you know maybe riding with with friends who you know are going to ride a bit more a bit more cautious and a bit more you know, just aware of, you know, the potential dangers and just taking baby steps, you know, there's, it's like a kind of back to your previous question of there's a, an ego and a sense of, like, oh, I got to get back to that fast group race ride, mm-hmm. but, you know, take your time. And I think the the beauty of cycling is that you can have a long career. You know, there's people that are riding their bikes well into their seventies and eighties. And ideally that's what we can all do. And I think just being, being patient with, with yourself and kind of your, your mental state coming back from a, a serious crash is important to, just really take your time and you know wait till you feel comfortable. And also, be willing to say, "Hey, I don't feel comf- comfortable now. I'm gonna you know stop. Let the group go ahead. Just wait here for a couple minutes, and then you know meet you guys back at the cafe." It's something that's not always easy to do, but I think that being a being in a positive mental state makes you know makes yourself also feel safe. for the minute you're you know riding and you feel kind of you're above your level, you know that's probably more likely when when something else is going to happen when you're already feeling nervous and then the speed starts to pick up.
1: Did it did it take until later into 2020 for you to um start riding more regularly again or and were there a, a few setbacks through 2019
0: yeah I mean so I crashed at, at terrain ride a coach I think it was in March mid-march and I didn't really start riding again until like end of May and that was just you know I' had come back to Vermont I didn't race again for the rest of that year and i actually didn't really ride in the peloton until 2021 when I did my first gravel event and so, yeah, it was a long time before racing and kind of just being in a big group and it was a little bit shocking to kind of be back in that environment where, you know, you have people and the, just the, the sounds and the energy that goes into, you know, any sort of race or event. But yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I guess I, as I said, I've had, you know, years of, of racing in, in a group, so maybe I'm already a bit more comfortable than, than some people who haven't done that as much. But you know, I think just just building up the the confidence slowly was something that you know was super, I guess, helpful for me. Just just you know, taking taking my speed and my pace for the first you know couple of months, even like year, just until I felt you know more comfortable on the bike again.
1: And I should definitely mention that um, when suffering from concussion, that's that's something where any riding is. Not advisable, um which which you have sp- uh, spoken about um, in gr- in great depth yourself. But the the riding once the subs- the symptoms have subsided does also need to be gradual, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, and that's one thing that you know at the time you know since done a lot of research and seen you know a lot of specialists to kind of you know. Realized that but, you know my initial kind of response was like, "Hey, I'm gonna try to get back to to riding as quick as possible," and I just didn't feel I didn't feel right, I didn't feel safe, and you know one thing that I really struggled with with my concussion was just my my balance and a lot of like inner ear and vision stuff, and it was a while before I just felt even looking over my shoulder again kind of anything on my left side of my body you know I'd look left over my shoulder I mean, here in the u.s we ride on the on the right side of the road so I'd be looking over my left shoulder to see if there was a car thinking I was still riding straight and I would kind of do this huge swerve you know had I been riding in groups I probably would have caused a crash or taken myself down but just slowly kind of reacquainting myself with my spatial awareness was a huge a huge thing and one of the other things I noticed during that recovery process was, you know, maybe have a couple of days where I felt actually okay on the bike. And I was like, cool, I'm getting back to it. And then, you know, a couple of days later, I'd just be really in a slump and like, oh man, I feel horrible and I can't ride anymore. So being, being patient with yourself as well, you know, the, the recovery from a concussion is not linear. You know, sometimes it's two steps forward, one step back, or even two steps forward, three steps back. So just being honest with yourself and how you feel and kind of taking the time to recover and really being in tune with, how you're feeling is is super important. Do
1: you feel satisfied yourself in, in the way that you've generated a lot more awareness of the issue and hopefully that will make everyone's riding who suffers a crash safer whether they're professional or not?
0: Yeah I mean I've you know tried to you know whether it's through a podcast or you know different advocacy groups tried to share my experience you know it's still been somewhat frustrating to kind of see what's I mean, I know there's been some progress in, in the world tour and with, you know, the professional cyclists, but a lot of that ultimately is just going to come down to a cultural change. You know, I remember watching Roman Bardet crash. I think it was the 2020 tour and with his teammates, like help him, you know, help him put him back on his bike. And it's just like, oh my gosh, like he is clearly concussed, you know, he stood up and stumbled, you know, and I've spoken with quite a few doctors and specialists over in the UK who have worked with, you know, rugby. And they said, you know, all the you know research and education like nothing really changed until the culture of the sport changed and so hopefully you know more people are becoming more aware teams are becoming more aware but ultimately I think the biggest change is going to come when you know athletes and, and riders and friends are looking out for each other because oftentimes the the rider themselves doesn't really have the you know the know-how in that moment to, to take themselves off the bike or you know out of a race because they're you know kind of wired to just keep going so Ultimately, I think it's the um, you know it's a cultural change within you know our sport and our society to realize that you know head injuries are are serious. You know they're not always immediately diagnosable. You know you can crash and hit your head really hard and not have any blood, not have any sort of immediate symptoms, but you know you might be riding down the road and five minutes later have another crash because you're just not feeling quite right, which is even more dangerous than than the initial crash.
1: And can quite a lot of uh, riders who have suffered serious crashes have, have spoken of? the psychological trauma and the issues um bouncing back from that did did was mental therapy part of your recovery
0: yeah i mean i i worked with a therapist in the kind of months following my crash and i think that you know for myself there was a lot of things that were were happening you know not just the the crash and kind of the you know chemical changes that i was experiencing from from the crash but also the thought of like well what am i going to do next you know am i going to be able to ride my bike again am i gonna be able to race if i'm not racing professionally, you know, am I, you know, what, what am I going to do for a career? I'm 28 years old and kind of, you know, put all my eggs in this, in a cycling basket. And so it was a definitely a long and hard journey to kind of come to the sense and, you know, really also in, in the sense, that, you know, one of the biggest things was kind of realizing what I actually had accomplished and being proud of that. Because, you know, when you're, when you're at the top of the sport, you know, especially the time I was at Team Sky, you know, you're surrounded by the best athletes in the world who are constantly winning the biggest races. So, you know, to realize that, you know, yeah, I didn't win the Tour de France, I didn't win Paris-Nice, but, you know, the journey that I came through growing up in Oregon and, you know, making it to the World Tour and racing the Tour de France was pretty incredible. So I think a lot of the the therapy I did was just really kind of being satisfied with what I, what I had done and what I had accomplished. And then, you know, just balancing that with, you know, kind of who I was at, at the time and, you know, what I could do going forward to continue to be in a positive state. And then ultimately, you know, realize that how much I love cycling, that I could keep continue
1: to ride was that a regular series of um sessions you had and or or is that is that something you just um dipped dipped into as needed What, what 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 would be the best approach to to that therapy
0: i mean i think it's very much kind of dependent on on each individual case and that's one of the challenging things with concussion as a whole is that there's not you know there's not a kind of a standardized protocol as far as what recovery looks like. You know, I think one thing when athletes break a collarbone, it's it's pretty kind of set in stone like how you recover. You know, you go to a hospital, you get a plated, you take a week off the bike, maybe riding the trainer, but two weeks later you're outdoors riding again. And concussion, you know, can be it could be a couple of weeks that you're out, it could be a week, it could be months, it could be years, it could be, you know, for the rest of your life where you're not able to ride, which is which is challenging. I think that unknown is kind of the hardest hardest aspect of it. So I think for for myself, you know, just seeing a therapist, it was, you know, I went through some pretty dark and low times, just kind of I felt like everything was, was taken away from me, you know, I wasn't able to ride, I was on a contract year. You know, I was 28 years old, I had just done the Tour de France the year prior, so I was kind of feeling like I was still progressing. And then for all that to stop, you know, that's a lot to kind of, you know, digest at the time. So just being able to, you know, speak with someone and realize that you still have so much life ahead of you was, was something incredibly valuable and helpful for me. So I did, and I did a series of things, who kind of just based off what was needed. Sorry, my dog is here in the background wanting to play with the toy. No problem. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it was really just a matter of, you know, kind of seeing this therapist as needed. You know, there was times when, you know, I'd message them like, hey, like, can we speak this week? Like, I'm really struggling. And then, you know, by the time we actually spoke, everything was kind of fine. Um, there was a lot of like, you know, almost, you know, irrational kind of, you know, ups and downs that were happening that made it sometimes more challenging because by the time I actually spoke to the therapist, I was like, oh, I'm feeling better now. And I, you know, I feel fine. But, then, you know, a couple of days later, I'd be like, oh, geez, like I need to speak to someone. But yeah, it's uh, it's really just kind of a case by case basis, and I would recommend anyone who you know is struggling with any sort of kind of mental challenges and hurdles. It can be incredibly beneficial to to speak with someone, and oftentimes, you know, the more you speak with them, the more regularly you speak with them. Kind of the the deeper you can get into things, and the more you can break down and, and talk about, it, and kind of the more you open up, which is incredibly helpful for for them to understand, and also for you just to be able to kind of get off your chest.
1: And 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 now. D- are you are you far more more, more comfortable and, and, and happier now with with your new um, new career, new family?
0: Yeah, no, it's I mean I'm in an incredibly fortunate spot in my life. You know, I still get a still get a race, race my bike and you know still feel healthy and you know like I said a lot of it's just come down to the realization that I've had an awesome journey. You know, racing and riding and you know I've lived a lot more <laughs> a busier life now. You know, I've got a lot more going on than. Than just riding, resting, and, and eating, but it, it's very fulfilling. And I think you know, constantly just finding new challenges is something that you know I think will always kind of drive me forward. And at the moment, you know, that's you know my work, and also you know trying to excel in gravel racing. But I'm sure in a couple of years' time, you know, it might be it might be something completely different.
1: Ian, it's been absolutely fantastic speaking to you. I can hear um, that your dog wants you to uh, to play. What's what's your dog's yeah, yeah, name?
0: Well, it's Winston, and he's Winston. been. Um, <laughs> Yeah, he's been the second fiddle since we've had our child, so he's become more, yeah, he's become a little bit more needy recently.
1: That, that That's quite all right. It's been a really, really intriguing chat, and I've um, covered all I wanted to, but is there anything else that you'd like to mention yourself?
0: No, I mean, I just hope that, you know, as, as the sport goes forward, that we can all get along. <laughs> it's kind of one of the biggest things I've realized over the last couple, really, year or so with, you know, kind of this growth of gravel. You know, a lot of people have different opinions and, I just hope that we can all realise that everyone's riding a bike and to allow everyone to kind of ride in their own unique way. And whether that's, you know, racing as a professional or just racing, having fun and wearing baggy shorts. Like, you know, we're all out there on bikes and just to accept everyone how they choose to come to the sport.
1: That, 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 I think that's a really good good note to end on. and uh, Thanks very much. Yeah, I, I certainly agree. If you did enjoy this podcast, please give us a five-star rating on your favourite podcast provider. And if there's anything we could improve, we'd be grateful for your feedback. Also, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and share with whoever you think might enjoy it too. Thanks again for listening and speak soon. Thanks for listening to the Bike Radar podcast. If you've not done so already, please subscribe and share with your friends or leave us a rating if you've enjoyed this episode.